You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Section 2. Process of Infection What Butner experienced was the loss of self, the loss of mind and high intelligence that the onset of the infection brings. It is experienced in different ways, but it happens in a series of stages, usually over a period of four hours, depending on how much infected fluid has entered the body and from where. In the first 10 to 20 minutes there will be dizziness, blurred vision. This may abate depending on the severity of the wound, but even if it does, the victim of a bite must be separated from the group and watched. As the headaches, bodily pains and nausea set in, they will begin to forget themselves, acting as though heavily intoxicated on wine or spirits. Sometimes this will bring euphoria and even an overwhelming sense of well-being. In others, it will precipitate violent bouts of anger. By the two-hour mark, the victim will become highly erratic, prone to fits of unseemly and often obscene behavior. The animal impulses are being exacerbated at this stage as their mind fades away. They are a danger to themselves and to those around them. It is thus at this stage that we encourage those watching over the affected to execute their bodies. There is nothing more that can be done for them. Left alive, they will nearly always attempt escape, appearing hostile and fearful of men. At this stage, they are wild and powerful and should not be grappled with for fear of passing on further infection. Some will drift into unconsciousness and not witness the remainder of their transformation. The ones left awake are in for a disturbing experience. We impart this to you now, not in hopes of instilling fear, but in understanding what occurs to them. They will scream, they will claw at themselves and tear at the clothes confining them. You will hear bones cracking and realigning. Their eyes will be bloodshot and take on an alarming orange hue. If they have not done so already, most will void their bowels and bladders. This is the beginning of a physical metamorphosis that takes weeks to fully complete. At the end of an average of four hours, however, they will be physically capable of swift, brutal movement, evasion and attack and should at this stage be considered wild and lethal animals, far worse, in fact, than the wolf, cougar, or bear. When a man is bitten by a wolf and survives, he does not become one in turn. That is the preserve of folklore, lycanthropy, and the myth of the werewolf. However, this fairy tale bears so many relevant similarities with the condition we now face that it is worth examining for the basis in fact at its core. This was a story made up to explain how men could be gripped with an animalistic fury, lose the sight of themselves in which their humanity dwelled, and run wild, spreading this frenzy wherever they went. As our understanding of afflictions of the mind deepened over the centuries, so too did the superstition surrounding a man taking the form of a wolf slowly melt away into fable. 
It is thus once again rationality and appropriate action that will counteract the effects of this very real physical and mental condition that has swept through our world. While the carriers of this malady lose their humanity and all traces of the person they were prior to infection, they also gain certain benefits that make them excellent and formidable hunters. The following account details further the intimidating traits of the creatures we now face. Private Lawton Sadler, Madisonville, Tennessee, August 23rd. 1878. We came across a wendigo from a vantage point at the crest of a canyon. There were nearly a thousand yards between us, and thanks to the scout's swift action, we placed ourselves upwind. It had sighted a deer that had strayed from the woods and busied itself beside a stream with an evening drink. We noted at this stage that the wendigo had likewise positioned itself upwind of the deer and now crept towards it, using the brush for cover. It was naked and most likely male. It made no sound and moved patiently and deliberately, with a slinking, feline precision. Even from this distance we could observe it sniffing the air and cocking its head for any sign of other animals approaching. It was truly chilling to see what remained of a man, playing so skillfully at being a beast. It seemed to either not notice the rough terrain it was traversing, or else its feet and hands, legs and elbows were so leathery and conditioned that the skin now neither ruptured nor broke as tough as the hide on a dog's paws. The deer paused for a moment and raised its head. The moonlight shone down on the ground around it, but the bushes nearby where our wendigo crouched were shrouded in shadow. The deer fixed them nonetheless with a long, trembling look. It began to move away from the water, and in doing so, deliberately edged away from the bushes. There was this low hiss, and the wendigo sprang. The deer started and made to leap away to safety, but the wendigo was already upon it, dashing the deer's head against a rock twice. The fallen animal lunged upwards in a desperate escape bid, but the wendigo wrestled it down, breaking its hind leg at the knee and sinking its jaws into the deer's neck. There was a moment of thrashing, and the wendigo was suddenly pushed off, rolling nimbly to one side. We could see its eyes shining in the darkness, the light of the moon reflecting back. Around its maw was a messy splash of crimson. It fixed its gaze on the deer, which pulled itself to three of its hooves, and, mewling, attempted a hobbling gallop away toward the trees. Now, as a child, I owned a cat. He was an expert rat catcher, and would leave us offering after offering on the front stoop, for which we heaped praise and adulation upon him. But every so often I would find him at work in the night, watching with fascinated eyes as he mutilated and played with his prey, biting and clawing enough to injure but not kill and then retreating to a safe distance to observe the rodent's last struggle for life. I later realized that the reason the cat was so successful and proficient a killer was that he never took on the strong rats in protracted single combat. Instead, he used his wits and cruelty to turn the fight to his own advantage. This is what I saw in the canyon last night. A creature of instinct and cunning following after its stumbling, crying, and bleeding prey calmly, carefully, and with full control over its urges. My companions and I surmised that this must be a well-fed wendigo, not prone to the madness brought on by starvation of so many we encounter. After some time, the deer lay down and did not rise again. The wendigo closed in, and though the deer kicked at it feebly, the wind's teeth clamped around the beast's jugular. Shortly thereafter, the feeding began. Now, I've hunted and cleaned deer myself, and I'm no stranger to their components, but the methodical manner this 
form of man adopted as he gorged upon its flesh gave him the appearance of one bathing in viscera. The heavy scent of it on the breeze made all three of us wretch. The scout, Askook, was the one who attempted the kill. Quietly casting aside his rifle for fear of attracting more nearby Wendigo attention with the echoing crack of gunpowder. Instead, he unslung his bow and crept to a vantage point. With the wind against him, it had to be far closer or his arrow's course would be diverted. He motioned for us to stay back. Private Collins and I trained our Winchesters on the far-off figure of the Wendigo. Askook deftly notched an arrow and drew back the string. As it produced only the faintest of creaks, I, I couldn't hear the sound, but the Wendigo must have done. Its head snapped around and it fixed Askook with a blazing scowl and that rictus grin. Askook loosed the arrow, but it thudded uselessly into the deer carcass, for the Wendigo was already crossing the distance between them, which now seemed altogether too short. Collins fired a mist. My shot grazed past and impacted on the rocks between them. At this juncture, I, I cannot overemphasize the debilitating fear that comes with shooting at something that moves this fast and with consequences this dire if they reach you or your companions. Anybody who's faced down a mountain line will understand the, the unutterable tension of that moment you have to commit to squeezing the trigger. Askook had freed his knife and brought it down on the creature's left shoulder, eliciting this barking scream of rage from the Wendigo. The two struggled as Collins and I raced over, readying our rifles once again. The scout pulled himself out from under the Wendigo and bolted towards the stream, his body slick with fresh blood. The Wendigo was bleeding profusely from neck, shoulder, and deep lacerations to its heart, and still in the grip of spasm, it rolled over and hissed at the two of us, its mouth pulling back once again into that parody of a smile. We shot it until it stopped moving. Askook eventually emerged from the stream. He checked and cleaned his wounds over and over, cursing in the language of the Cree. We sat with him a while, waiting for the telltale signs of the onset of infection. This was a man we had fought beside for many months. We knew his childhood aspirations and the names of his three children. It was in fact the moment he forgot them that he began to climb the highest cliff of the canyon. This was how he wanted to end it, and we, we abided by his wishes. It was one simple thought to hold on to, the control of his own ultimate demise. I don't know if savages end up in limbo for such sins, but it would be a cruel father who would forever imprison a man so brave. We buried him far from the grave pit of the Wendigo. Food of the Wendigo It is a common misconception that the Wendigo will feed exclusively on humans. This is not at all the case. What appears to be true, however, is that humans are, to date, the only animals that can suffer the infection and succumb to the physical and mental state of the Wendigo. They will eat any meat available to them. Cattle, deer, sheep birds, carrion, though they will avoid truly rotten flesh. 
It is also untrue that they will not feed off one another. In fact, many concentrated areas of Wendigo populations will do precisely this. But it is patently a last resort, some survival quirk of the species to prevent it from self-destructing. When they eat, they will first gorge on the blood, though often much of this is drained from their victims in the kill before the feeding begins. The high iron content of that blood may fulfill some deficiency of that mineral. After the initial frenzy, they eat in a methodical and careful manner. They will devour the body, starting with the flesh and proceeding to the muscle, and then the organs. The bowels and intestines they will usually leave. A grown man will sustain a wendigo for several days, and it is not uncommon for them to drag the carcass back to their nest to keep it safe for themselves. Occasionally they will share a meal with other wendigos, but there is violent competition for food, often leading to instances of starvation. During the Civil War, there were many prison camps set up. These were the worst of places to find yourself. Food was scarce, disease rife, and exposure to the elements a constant threat. The camps claimed one in ten of the men who died during the conflict, but in scenarios so far from anything that could resemble glory, that the despair experienced in these dark, desolate places would have been incomparable. When the war ceased and the men were set free, often after years of incarceration, it was not uncommon for them to be near skeletal in appearance, malnourished, neglected and ill-treated to a wraith-like existence. Having witnessed this myself firsthand, I can attest the sight and notion of what a man can be reduced to haunted my nightmares in the years since. However, having seen Wendigos in the advanced stages of starvation, seen them devoid of their former cunning, stumbling on stick-thin legs towards their prey, finding untold reserves of frenzied strength within their brittle frame and biting into them with yet more ferocity than their well-fed relations, I can assure you that nightmare was replaced. have been listening to section two of the cartographer's handbook remastered process of infection written by alexander shaw thomas w arlington performed by alex shaw lawton sadler performed by spencer lieb make your decision by dan phillipson of shockwave sound hero down and dreams become real composed and performed by kevin mcleod of incompetech.com the New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, 
John Clayson, Tyler Long, Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs>